Amen. Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that uh, God uses his word. Hey, guys, pull me down just a little bit. <laughs> I can hear the ring. That's a lot. <laughs> All right. So we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the most important thing he uses it for is to teach us about himself and to reveal himself to his people. And so we want you to know God. We want you to walk deeply with him. And you start that relationship, you start that walk by pressing in through his word. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we want to fix that today. So take that physical one home and start reading it. All right, so we have uh, been for a few weeks now uh, in a series that we're calling Just and Justifier. Uh, We're walking... uh, uh, taking a slow walk, really, through the book of Romans, just kind of walking line by line, verse by verse, uh, whatever you want to call it, through the book of Romans, and we're giving it this title, this theme of just and justifier, and the reason for that is really simple. Um, Those two J words are titles for God himself. And Paul is going to spend the book of Romans kind of spelling out how God can be both. I don't know if you've ever really thought through it, but it's really difficult for someone to be both just and justifier. Um, In fact, it's impossible for someone to be both just and justifier unless you're God himself. Uh, To be perfectly just is to mean that, that you always, always give exactly what is deserved. Always. There has never been a time in all of history, eons past, eons to the future, where God has failed to act in perfect, perfect justice. He is the one who gives to all exactly what they deserve. And when you're talking about God, you're not just talking about justice, you're talking about infinite justice. The only problem, though, is that well, he also wants to be called justifier. The justify means to declare someone as right, to make them right, to make them righteous. So how can God be both the one who always gives what is deserved and at the very same time be the one who declares sinful people like you and me as righteous? Would that be an act of justice? That would be unjust. God can't do both unless there is a special circumstance. And that special circumstance, the short answer, is the cross. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came and died as a substitute. He paid the debt of our sin. And the Bible teaches that justice is given out in perfection on that day. It's just that God steps in himself and takes it for us. That's how God can be both just and justifier. And so throughout the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is going to spell out for us the long-form version of that answer. It's going to deal with this massive question. And the picture that we threw out a few weeks back that we've been bringing back into the picture over and over again is the picture of a skyscraper. To help us understand the gospel well, to help us understand uh, the book of Romans well, we really kind of need to picture a modern skyscraper. And the reason for that is it's, it's pretty neat, actually. Um, Romans is like a skyscraper because with a skyscraper, you put pieces together piece by piece by piece. You don't just lean a couple of tall things like teepee style together and then go off to eat lunch, right? Like you've got to do something that actually builds the building. There's plans. There's, there's a lot of uh, resources that get pulled together before you start. And no one just kind of like takes their big ladder and a flagpole and leans them together and says, hey, we've got a skyscraper, Right? 
There's work. There's intentionality there. And so you build piece by piece by piece. And so that's exactly what Paul's going to do throughout the book of Romans. He's going to build the argument for the gospel, for the desperate need for a Savior, globally speaking, and who, how Jesus comes to be that Savior. He's going to build that argument piece by piece by logical piece. Another way that Romans is like a skyscraper is that all of the most important work is going on down at the bottom. Like everybody's ooing and aahing about the pretty antenna on the top. I do too, right? You see a cool building, you're focused on that thing at the top. But like if you understand engineering at all, no one thinks that the antenna is actually doing anything, right? It's the foundation and even below the, the surface of the ground that all the real work is being done. And if you were to close your eyes and just try to draw a skyscraper real quick, the biggest part would be at the bottom, right? Like, my kid may draw a little skinny bottom and, like, make it balloon up at the top, but that's not going to stand very long, right? No, you, you draw a skyscraper by going big piece, slightly smaller piece, slightly smaller piece. I hope everybody's windows are up. <laughs> by the way, Jim, can you check to make sure those windows are closed back there? All right. Just saying they were open a while ago. All right. So, no, if you were to build a skyscraper, you start with the big piece at the bottom, right? Yeah, that's how you build a skyscraper. So Paul is going to spend the book of Romans, the first big chunk of the book of Romans, kind of walking through the reality and setting these massive foundations in place. And he's going to take a lot of time. He's going to spend a lot of energy and effort making sure we understand the base level things as he moves along faster and can go through stuff quicker at the top. And so last week, last week we began to walk through Paul's attempt to indict us in our sin. Like the very foundation of this skyscraper is Jesus and his resoluteness. Jesus gets to be the only thing that can be resolute enough to actually support the gospel. And, and so we started there. And then the week after that, we started looking at this reality that all people everywhere, all men have sinned before God. That, that we are desperate in our need for a Savior. And so Paul begins to walk through that indictment of our sin. And he makes it clear that all men are without excuse. This isn't some kind of you need Jesus but I don't kind of thing. His argument is that at the very core of every single one of us is a kernel of sin, universal to us all, that rejects God as king, rejects God as Lord, and then tries to usurp him and put our own selves on the throne. That is the kernel buried in each of us. And it fleshes itself out in this type of sin. It fleshes itself out in that type of sin. But... Every single one of us stands before him as guilty. That's where we left off last week. Whether you're bent as homosexuality or disobedience to your parents or a billion points in between, every single one of us stands condemned. That's what Paul is talking about at the tail end of Romans chapter 1. And the perfect judge of all the earth, the one who always, always gives out exactly what is deserved, He's going to dole out his justice. He's going to give to all judgment. But Paul also tells us that the righteous will stand by faith. And that is good news. Like, 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 like those who stand before God as righteous, it's not because they, they bring their own righteousness to the table. It's by faith. Like They're condemned too. They're, the righteousness that they have, the Bible teaches, is given to them by someone who is righteous for them. And because they put their trust in that righteous one, that righteous one now stands on their behalf. So you all ready to look at the next little stage in Paul's gospel skyscraper this morning? 
All right, we'll be in chapter 2. Some of y'all have already looked at the sermon title, and y'all know where we're going. The We Need Jesus portion of our skyscraper is much bigger section than we like to think it is. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, time out. Those of you who have been here a while, y'all know why that's funny. Um, those of you who have not been here, let me bring you up to speed. Um, the word therefore is not an accident. Paul put that there on purpose. And so uh, the therefore is there for a reason. And that reason is that everything that we looked at last week is directly connected to and flows into what we're going to look at this week. So you can't make sense of this week without understanding properly what we talked about last week, right? There's a logical progression of thought here. And so because all men stand condemned, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. All right, so what if? What if, after reading Paul's list of those who stand condemned, like you remember we left that off last week, we, we had this long list of the, the, the envious, the covetousness, the greedy, the, the, the slanderer, the one who gossips, the, the one who is disobedient to their parents. Paul walks through this massive list of those who fall short of God's glory and fall short of God's expectation and, and have this deep-seated thing in us that, that rejects him as king and places ourself on the throne. All right? No matter where that fleshes itself out, Paul lists off this massive list of sins and but maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, that's those, those, uh, those other people. Like, I'm one of the good guys. Those are the bad guys, the, the godless ones. I mean, I've never murdered anybody, and I try not to gossip. And, uh, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in church on a regular basis. And so, or maybe you serve in some way. Surely God takes those things into account, Right? Like he's, yeah, he's got some bad stuff. I, I've, got some, I've got a couple of misdemeanors on my record, but I've also got all this good stuff, right? Isn't that kind of the way the world tends to see this, this interaction between themselves and God? And so Paul's going to begin to address this. See, I've done all the religious things you're supposed to do. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I've been baptized. I've pretty much kept my nose clean. Yeah. I mean, have you seen my neighbor? <laughs> He's a jerk. Not my neighbor, your neighbor. No, God's going to judge those who are outside the camp. But what about those of us who are inside the camp, right? I mean, we've got, we, we've got all this good stuff going on. I, I'm all set. I'm, I'm, I'm good. But Paul says here that, that you're guilty of the very same things that they are. In fact... He seems to paint the picture that it's even worse for us because in our hypocrisy, we judge others thinking that somehow God owes us something that he doesn't owe to them. Like God's going to give them what they deserve, but because we perform some fill-in-the-blank religious action, then, well, he's going to judge us by some different metric that he judges them by. But Paul says in verse 2, 
we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. No one gets out of this. The just judge of all the earth will give to all exactly what they deserve. So why do we tend to fall into the rut, each and every one of us, myself included? Why do we tend to fall into the rut of thinking, I'm going to have something that I can offer back to him to sweeten the deal a little bit? Well, verse 3 tells us, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All right, so I think one of the most pervasive religious myths, not just today, but just throughout all of human history, is that God's kindness exists for the purpose of serving us. Like you just walk out on the street, and you don't have to walk on the street. You, make, you could probably call this from in here. Like you just ask a random person, why is God kind? It's because he loves us, right? It's because he wants to do these things. Like the theologian, uh, late theologian R.C. Sproul once said, we tend to view God as a cosmic bellhop, a celestial Santa Claus. All we have to do is come and ask him for what we want, and he will provide it for us. Now, Sproul had a, a knack for saying things in a really, really strong way to get people's attention. But is he wrong? I mean, they're strong words, but, but if what we talked about last week is true, if at the core of every single one of us is a reality that we have rejected him as king and placed ourselves on the throne, then how else would we view him? What's left for us other than to treat him like Aladdin's genie? So we learn of his goodness and we learn of his kindness and we think to ourselves, oh, of course he's good. Of course he's kind. I mean, come on, he shows his goodness by delighting in me and blessing me and providing for me. And we learn, we open up the Bible and we learn of his forbearance and we learn of his patience and we think to ourselves, oh, of course he's patient. God's a gentleman. He would never rush me. I'm the apple of his eye, the center of his universe. And so we take the kindness and we take the patience of God for granted, don't we? Because deep down we think to ourselves, well, he has to be kind and he has to be patient. That's like his job, right? And every bit of it, every single bit of it is another layer in a long list of rejecting his cosmic authority and instead exalting ourselves. It's what we do. It's what we're best at even. And Paul says at the end of verse 4 here, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? See, the tragic reality is that our hearts are so darkened by our selfishness and our sin, so calloused and carterized to what we ought to see and feel that the very thing that delays God's wrath on us is just another in a long list of things that we turn around and flip on its side and use to make much of ourselves. We're pros. It's what we are best at. And so the indictment rolls on here from Paul. He, he just keeps digging the grave deeper and deeper. And then look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. All right, guys, that is a scary sentence. Like, I hope you hear that as a scary sentence this morning. There's a lot of misunderstanding that gets floated around of uh, people tend to have about heaven and hell and things like that. Like, the, one of the biggest ones is the, the trope that when you die, you become an angel and you float around in a cloud playing a harp, right? We've all seen the cartoons, right? First of all, doesn't matter what your aunt shared on Facebook. That's not how it works. She's wrong. It's not in the Bible. You don't become an angel when you die. There's also no clouds involved. There may be a harp. I'd rather play the guitar. Secondly, though, the Bible seems to paint the picture that heaven will be a place of work and service. No one's lounging around all day. A place of glorified work, a return to the sinless beauty of the garden. You also see the picture from Jesus and a bunch of other places in the Bible that there will be, seems to be levels of responsibility in heaven and levels of reward. And so you got passages, again, from Jesus, like in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break, and steal, break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And the implication there is that you really can invest in a heavenly treasure and in a heavenly future, right? But what about the, the bad place? What about hell? If there are levels of reward and position in heaven, will there also be levels of punishment there? And I think most people, when they start thinking through this, they immediately go to Dante, uh, the divine comedy, right? And so they, they picture rings of hell. I, that's not in the Bible either. That's just pure Dante imagination. But according to Romans 2 here, according to Paul, it it is possible to store up more and more wrath for yourself. Like a giant savings account, Paul tells us that we can continue to store up more and more wrath until God decides to cash out. That sounds fun, right? Probably a bad day. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All right, so there are a lot of people who I, I think confuse things like church membership and family lineage and even some religious religious practices uh, with what the Bible would call atonement. All right, uh, the act of purchasing peace between you and God. And so um, there's just something in us that causes us to carry around the assumption that we'll, when we finally do stand before God, we'll have some little things that we can offer up in order to swing His decision a little bit. Well, I know I was baptized and confirmed when I was a child, right? Oh, my family's always been a Christian. We, we practically built this church. Where I've got the 10-year perfect attendance award in Sunday school. Got a badge to prove it. Some of you have way more than 10 years. In Paul's context, it was more like, well, pff, I'm a descendant of Abraham. And I bear the marks of circumcision on my body. Or, you know, I try to make it a, a habit to duck into the synagogue a couple times a month. We're pretty faithful with that. But Paul makes it clear here that, that God will render to every single one according to his works. He doesn't show partiality. 
And he certainly doesn't show partiality to those who are religiously minded. He doesn't weigh your family history into the equation. You can't saddle up next to him with something to offer him in order to sweeten the deal. The just judge is not swayed. He weighs your life in his perfect scale and he gives to all exactly what is owed. So congratulations, churchgoer. You have more access to understanding who God is than others do. So what did you do with it? Well, verse 12 takes the next step. For all who have sinned without the law, they will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by what? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, in the world of theology, um, the original definition of words are way more important than whatever the word is morphed into over time. Right? And a clear example of that is the word immediate. Right? When we think of the word immediate, we think strictly in terms of time, right? Like something happens and then immediately after that, to use the, def- the word in the definition of the word, something else happens. Right? Without delay. That, that's what immediate means to us. But that is not what the word immediate means in the world of theology. The M-I-M in immediate is a prefix, which means without. And the root word is mediate. Without mediation, without a mediator. So why is that important? Well, because last week we spent a bunch of time talking about how what we call general revelation. That God made creation specifically to show himself off. In other words, to see creation correctly, we should walk away from that view of creation with a small sense of who God is. We should walk away with a small sense of his bigness and a small sense of his power and a small sense of his great love for us and a small sense of his moral perfection. And so last week, Paul began spelling out our indictment before God by saying that all men everywhere, you, me, and your neighbor, are without excuse because God was intentional to make himself known through the mediator of creation. He gave a tool, a go-between, to be between he and man so that man would see that he is God. Creation is a mediator to show off the glory of God. But now in Romans 2, Paul takes the next step and he fills out our indictment just a little bit more by telling us that we're also guilty in the immediate sense. That even though we have the go-between, even though we have the revelation of himself through creation to see our guilt, we don't actually need that because God has also programmed a sense of right and wrong and a sense of who he is deep down in our hearts. Paul says that it doesn't matter if we had the law or if we didn't have the law, that every single one of us stands condemned before the Father. And the proof for this immediate revelation in our hearts, he says, is that you can just sit back and watch the Gentiles for a while. They don't have the law. They didn't have the revelation of God. But yet still, they seem to sometimes do exactly what was required of them. They know what's right, they they know what's good, and it's not some accident. No, God put that there. 
Look at verse 15 again. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And this is the Bible's argument for the conscience and the the moral standing of non-believers. As Christians, we believe that everybody's got that little thing in them that brings to mind what is right and brings to mind what is good and pleasing to God. And even though every single one of our actions is stained by sin in some way, not all of our, or none of our actions are as sinful as they could be. Even though every action is stained by sin, no action is as sinful as it could be. Even in our rejection and usurpation of God, image bearers, they just can't help but still look a little bit like their creator. So what does this mean on a practical level? It means that you have some non-Christian neighbors who are better neighbors than you. Some of you wasn't a hard threshold to cross. They're better husbands than you. They're better employees than you. God has put something in all people that at least values much of what is good and right. And sometimes they stumble into it. On the positive side of things, I think this helps us in our approach to evangelism. Um, Sin blinds us to darkness. Sin blinds us to, to what is broken in the world. But once you figure out what's in your neighbor that looks a lot like God, that looks a lot like the goodness of God, well, you're in a position for a much deeper kind of conversation. Right? I, I noticed you did that. But why do you value that? Let's talk about that. You have a redemptive counterpoint to the, well, that's just the way the world works argument that gets thrown around. But that's the positive way of looking at it because there's a flip side to this reality. If we all have little pieces of God's goodness buried deep down in our hearts and we can't help but act on them sometimes, that means that we have even less excuse than we had before. Like, if everybody can be rightly and justly condemned solely based on what already exists in the core of us, what hope do we have then of standing before him as blameless. And that is what makes verse 16 absolutely terrifying. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is nothing in your heart and in your head that God doesn't already know about. And there is not one thought or motive that will not be laid bare and on full display when he walks through his examination of you. And the more honest I am with myself, the more that scares me. Right? Because I can definitely think of some things that I've never acted on, but I've, I've definitely thought about that I'm going to be very embarrassed by. How about yourself? How will you stand before God when every secret thing in you is laid on the table and compared to the flawless righteousness of Christ Jesus? That's a weighty, scary thought. And aren't we all kind of desperate right now to get to the grace and redemption part? I mean, who's not itching for the but, 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 but? (laughs) We want the turn but Paul's not done indicting us yet. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew 
and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish and a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, so the Bible is absolutely clear, 100% clear that the gospel and specifically the cross of Jesus are stumbling blocks to people. In fact, it says in one place that they're the stench of death to some. So there will never, and I really mean ever be a day in any point in history when the gospel is seen as attractive to sinful hearts without God first breathing new birth into them. Regeneration is a necessity of the gospel. You can't get around it. People don't come to Christ on their own. God changes their heart. And so the reality The reality of this world is that there will be many who will be pleased to hear of this good thing or that good thing, maybe celebrate the church in this way or that way, but when you finally hear about the cross, they're going to bow out and they're going to walk away. Because it's foolishness to some. It's upside down from the wisdom of this world, and I think God did it that way on purpose so that no one could boast. But that does not mean that the cross is the only stumbling block that people have. Because the tragic reality is that oftentimes we, you and I, we create unnecessary stumbling blocks for people with our own sinful hypocrisy. Right? We preach against sin while practicing that sin ourselves. And listen, the the practice of hiding it is far more difficult than we like to believe it is. And so a lost world, a watching world, sees right through it. And there are times when we drive away people from the gospel before the gospel even has a chance to work in their hearts. And Paul says, Paul says that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. The Greek word there is the word ethnos. You see the same word in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It means nations. That God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of us. Anybody want to guess how God probably thinks about that? (laughs) Think that pleases him or stirs him up? And again, we long for the redemptive turn, right? We long for the, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. But instead, Paul has another paragraph. Verse 25 For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right, so if you don't have a church background, that is probably the most awkward paragraph you've ever heard read out loud. So what's all this stuff about circumcision? What is it? 
Well, for those of you who didn't grow up in church, it's a physical mark that was an, a sign of the covenant for Old Testament Israel. That's the short of it. All right? God commanded his people, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, to bear a mark on their bodies that was a physical sign, a sign that served a couple of purposes. One, it was to remind them daily of who their God was, who they belonged to. Right? You don't just forget about that. You see it all the time. It was a reminder daily that they belonged to God, not themselves. That they were set apart from the rest of the nations for his purposes. But secondly, it was also to remind them that God's promise to Abraham's offspring not only flowed to them, but flowed through them. It was a sign of being a part of the family of God's people. That he would one day fulfill his promises to Abraham. There's a problem, though, because all throughout the Old Testament, we see example after example after example of people who were circumcised physically but had no idea who God was, right? I mean, those of you who are walking through uh, Bible reading plans, you're getting to the good stuff right about this time of year. Stories of the Chronicles, First and Second Kings, like you know the stories. Some of those guys had no idea who God was, yet they bore the marks of circumcision. And so apparently, apparently it's pretty easy to take part in a religious action, even the most dedicated of those actions, and still not know who Jesus is. And that doesn't look anything like our culture, though, does it? <laughs> doesn't look like my own heart, does it? So by the time you get to the Apostle Paul writing Romans 2.28, and he has every bit the background to say, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And in the very next verse, he says, circumcision is a matter of the what? The heart. The attitude that Paul's addressing here is one that says, yes, God is just. Yes, yes, God will judge. Absolutely, we believe that. But, but we have the mark of being God's covenant people. He owes us something. I've, I've, I've done what was necessary. I've followed the, the commands. I, I, I belong to the covenant body. Yes, God is just, but I'm on the inside. He owes us his kindness and he owes us his grace. So even though they followed through with the physical sign that God had commanded them to observe, they were still lawbreakers. They were still lawbreakers. And so Paul tells them here, hey, you know that cutting a physical mark on your body doesn't actually change your heart in any way, right? Congratulations, you followed through with the sign of Abraham, but what, what does that actually gain you? You're still going to be judged by he who is perfectly just. In fact, Paul seems to indicate here that your situation may actually be worse because you've built up your identity around being obedient to the law, and you're really bad at being obedient to the law. That's what he's saying. Like, if you want to be the law keeper, if you want to, if you want to define yourself as being a part of the law keeping group, well, you're probably going to have to pick up the pace a little bit because you're you're falling behind. Look at twenty five. For circumcision indeed is of value, if that is a massive two letter word. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes nothing. Uncircumcision. 
So we can take out circumcision, and we can just as easily replace it with a bunch of countless other things that, you know, we place our religious identity in, right? We do this with all kinds of stuff. For some, it's church attendance. For some, it's uh, serving in some capacity. For others, even, it's maybe being involved in some kind of social justice effort, like human trafficking or slavery. All good, God-glorifying things, just like circumcision is, that he calls his people to. But we've got this sinful bent buried down deep in us. At least I do. That we take the one or two good things that maybe we're handling well, might actually be successful in, and we shift them, and we manipulate them, and we reframe them as the thing that God expects his people to do and be. And the entire time we're failing the other 99.9% of the law. We offer it up to God as if he should be pleased with us and impressed with us. Don't worry what's going on behind the curtain. Just pay attention to this, God. And Paul goes, sure you want to run that track? It will not end well. Like, are you sure you got the legs to maintain that kind of law keeping forever? You're not doing well today. How are you going to do 10 years from now? Because that's what's on the line here if our plan is to offer up our own righteousness. So if you're like me, you're probably starting to get really, really desperate for the yeah, but. I mean, is anybody here going, ah, that redemption stuff can wait. Just hit me again, Woodard. Tell me some more reasons that God has ever right to snuff me out. And we've been talking about this for two weeks, right? Like, why does Paul go to this level of effort to showcase our desperate need for a Savior? Couldn't it be done a lot faster? Like, we're going to get to Romans 3.23 in a, in a few weeks, and we're going to see that all men fall short of the glory of God. Hey, walk away. We're good. That, that does the job, right? Why does Paul go to this level to show our desperate need for a Savior? Like, like just think through some of the things we've walked through in the last two weeks. We're guilty of suppressing the truth of his revelation and creation. We're guilty of rejecting his kingship uh, over our lives and trying everything we can to exalt ourselves. We're guilty of running our own direction into gross and heinous sin as a result of that rejection of him. We're guilty of passing judgment on others for things that we also do because we blindly think that God owes us something. All right, we're guilty of ignoring his character and laws written on our very own hearts. And we're guilty of trying to offer up trinkets of obedience to him as we ignore everything else he's commanded us to do. Why does Paul go to this level? Because any one of these things would have been enough, right? I can think of two reasons why Paul keeps piling it on. One is because the, the we need Jesus to save us portion of our gospel skyscraper is far bigger than any one of us thinks it is. And we're not going to figure that out on our own. So God raises up an apostle to tell us. To teach us. But there's a second reason. Second reason I think that Paul piles it on. And, it's, and honestly, it's something that we could learn if we just stopped what we were doing and we walked into the nursery right now. If you've ever sat on the floor and played blocks with a kid, you know that if you're building a tower, the bigger your base is, the taller you can build your tower. Right? If you start just stacking blocks on themselves, they're going to fall over really quickly. But if you, if you take a second, take just a moment to make sure your base is big, 
you can just keep stacking blocks on top of blocks on top of blocks. And see, Paul's plan is to showcase the beauty and the goodness and the grandeur of Jesus and his gospel. And so the, other, um, and so the only tower worthy of the gospel is one that stands taller than every other tower in this world. Paul's gospel tower will dwarf every other system and every other pathway the world has to offer. And so he builds the base as wide as it needs to be. A simple nod towards our sin will not do. He's going to establish our cosmic need. And it's through properly understanding exactly how desperately we need a Savior that Jesus stepping into that Savior role is most clearly put on display. In other words, the greater we understand the depth of our sin, the bigger Jesus and his gospel are revealed to be. That's why. That's why Paul piles it on here. If we understand rightly how deep the hole is, we get a big picture of who our God is and what he has done. A quick indictment and then moving on is not good enough because Jesus is a cosmic kind of savior. But what about that redemptive turn we were all hoping to hear? Well, Paul's already mentioned it. Look at verse 29 again. But a Jew is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? By the who? Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from who? So apparently... Apparently, there's a way to be circumcised on the inside. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. And how do we attain it? It's not by anything that we have to offer. Who brings it? The Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Hey, you remember the last week when we spent a ton of time talking about how the righteous will stand by faith? Because I remember that. Neither you nor I can bring anything that God to God except the sin that separates us from him. But in his goodness, Jesus, the eternal son of God, came and died as a substitute. He paid the debt of our sin on the cross. And so the Bible teaches that justice is always, always given out in perfection. But for those of us who trust him in faith, God gives that justice to himself instead of you. He stands as both just and justifier. And so he takes those who are far from him and he reconciles them to himself by grace through faith. And, and so when you place your faith in him, and faith is just a synonym for trust, right? He circumcises your heart and you now stand as one who belongs to the covenant family of God. Not because you figured out how to please him, but because by faith you leaned into his perfection. So maybe you're ready this morning to respond to the offer of grace he gives. Maybe today is the day that you lean into his goodness and lean into his grace and his great work for you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if anybody wants to uh, come talk through that process. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to respond to God this morning too. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and pressing into him. Right? I think it's easy for all of us, or, or maybe I'm the only sinner in the room, uh, but I think it's easy for all of us to fall back into thinking that we're pretty awesome some of the time. I mean, yeah, I've got some junk, but hey, last week was pretty good, right? <laughs> the day you forget just how desperately you need a Savior is a dangerous day for your heart. 
The day you think that the gospel is for somebody else because you got it figured out. I'm past that point in my life. Oh, that's a dangerous day for your heart. So I think it's healthy to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis. But listen, I think we also have a responsibility as Christ followers to take what we've learned and turn around and teach it to others. And, and so I get that nobody wants to lead with the sin conversation. It's not exactly the best way to make a new friend. Hey, can I tell you about your desperate need for Jesus? But the Apostle Paul seems to believe that we need to understand our desperate need in order to understand what the gospel actually is. So maybe even if it's not your lead, you've eventually got to get there, right? Or else people don't know. And the tower can't be built. Who has God put in your life this week that needs to know that that God is both just and justifier? Who is God putting in your pathway today even that needs to know that the good, wise, creator, king, even though we are separated from him, has made a way where there was no way? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word as, as we need to this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for... Thank you for showing us our need for you today. I don't like talking about sin. I don't like talking about the shortcomings of my heart. I don't like talking about the things that I'd rather whitewash over and hide. But I want as much of you as I can get. And so if finally come into terms with and understanding the depth of my need, I get more of you, then that sounds like a win. Oh, would you call to mind this morning in each and every one of us, myself first of all, where I would you call to mind in each and every one of us, myself first of all, where I have where I have fallen short of your glory and fallen short of your expectations and fallen short of just your goodness and righteousness. Oh, but God, also remind me first of all that you are the God who is not content to sit back as merely judge. You are the God who came as justifier. That you came and that you lived the sinless life that I have no hope of living. Even if I turn it around today, I'd still be 36 years in debt. You were the God who came and lived the sinless life I can't live. And you were the God who died on a cross that you didn't have to die on. You took the wrath of God for me. So you are just and you are the one who justifies. Uh, would you make yourself known to us today? God, for anybody in here who doesn't know you yet, you yet, would you awaken hearts to see? Would you bring new birth? Would you make your name famous? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. <laughs>